Hey, you are listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Seven Mile Road. We are a gospel-centered church just north of Boston, Mass. To learn more about who we are and what we are going for together, just go to sevenmilemelrose.com. So it is a great privilege to get to open up God's Word with you today. We live in a world full of comparisons. A world full of comparisons. For example, we compare prices. Anybody do that? Compare prices on stuff? Have you got any idea how many product comparison websites there are? Just think about that for a second. The technical term is a lot. There's a lot of product comparison websites. And we compare products in both sane and insane ways. There is, I found this totally by accident, so like, don't judge me. There's a 16-minute YouTube video comparing colors of the iPhone 13 Pro that's been viewed 400,000 times. Now, again, I repeat, I am not one of those 400,000 people. But I'll take the worst-looking iPhone to just not have to watch that video, right? Like, it's that bad. We compare jobs, which this is especially true right now, right, with so many people changing jobs right now. And so we're evaluating compensation and work from home and time off and benefits. There's lots of comparison there. We compare coffee. Some of us do. Or some of you may have compared coffee and water once and decided you were just never going to drink coffee. Still a comparison. It is. Now, as you can see, there are all types of comparisons that take place in our world, and some of them are good. Some of them are productive. But some are bad. Some are hurtful. And some are just completely neutral. But when there's a good spirit behind them, comparisons can be helpful because they help us conceptualize and make decisions. A good comparison can help us wrap our mind around what we're looking at. And this is never more obvious than it is during draft season for whatever your pick of sports is. The MLS draft was this week. Nobody really cares, but it happened. And the NFL and NBA drafts will be happening in the next few months. And with them, every last sports website, podcast, and TV show will be issuing a draft guide that will feature the player comparisons. I guarantee they will do it. And every one of them will be the best one of all of them. And you should definitely pay them $13.99 a month for them. And in these draft reports, you're going to read things like, this kid is, quote, a shorter Ben Simmons with a jumper. Or this is a taller and bulkier Michael Carter Williams. Or this is an even slimmer Calvin Ridley. Now, Behind each of those comparisons is a story. By the way, I read all those off of a website, so I didn't even make those up. That's how crazy they are. And even slimmer, Calvin Ridley. Um, Calvin Ridley's like, man, I bulked up. But anyway, behind each of these comparisons is a story, not just of the current subject, but of the one that came before. And it's not just a story of a young person who has tremendous athletic ability and matching skill, but it's also the story of coaches and scouts who heard one day over the phone or in a text message, or an email, or in a meeting about a kid that they just have to see. See, they will have heard about height and weight and speed and jumping ability. They'll have heard about how the ball spins off of a quarterback's hands or the range of a shooting guard. They'll have heard about the explosiveness and jumping ability of a forward or the hands of a wide receiver. Right? They'll, they'll have heard those things. And after they've heard those things, and after they've watched video, they'll decide that they now need to see 
with their own eyes, right? Because the video, the video isn't enough. They got to see it with their own eyes. See, flights will be booked. Cars will be rented. Diner meals will be consumed. And hotels will be checked into as they seek to figure out, is this kid a practice squad player? Maybe a rotation player? A multi-year starter? Or is this the one? The elite player who will be a Hall of Famer. And as they evaluate, what are they going to do? Compare. They're going to compare. Who is he or she like? Who does this kid's play hint at them becoming? And of course, for those with the greatest potential, they'll ask, is this the one that will change the game for himself, for our team, and for that, that coach and scout? Is this going to be the one that changes the game for me? Is this the one that will change all of our fortunes? Who is this? They're going to have to answer. And whether or not they get this right will change games and seasons and lives. We're going to go back to Luke 9, 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. By some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod said, John, I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. I'm going to assume, perhaps wrongly, that I'm not the only one not fully dialed in with the political landscape of first century Israel. So here's a, just a quick refresher. Just forgive me. I was just out of, out of the loop here. Herod is the Tetrarch, the, which means he's the political ruler of Galilee, and he was so through much of, uh, of Jesus' life. And as the ministry of Jesus grows, word comes to Herod about him. And the word coming to Herod catches his attention because Jesus has been doing some amazing things. Now, as we've been working through the, the Gospel of Luke, Luke has told us not only about Jesus' teaching, but also about Jesus transforming the life of the garrison by casting out demons, about Jesus healing people, about Jesus raising the widow's son from the dead. We can imagine that as those things are happening and as word about those things is getting around, that this word wasn't just stopping at low-level neighborhood gossip, right? But this was stuff that really gets talked about. These stories about Jesus were not stopping at the Galilee patch. It's a joke. Like patch.com slash Galilee. There we go. There we go. See, the stuff Jesus was doing was now hitting White House briefings. That's where we're going to here. And Herod hears what people were, were saying about Jesus. And Luke tells us that Herod was perplexed. Herod is perplexed, confused, He's baffled because as people are seeing and hearing Jesus, they're trying to figure out who he is, which leads to comparisons, right? And to guesses about who he is. As a result, some people are saying that Jesus is John raised from the dead. In some ways, it makes sense that it could have been John the Baptist. Like there are miraculous things going on with Jesus, but he's also preaching repentance, right? This, so some of this is similar with John the Baptist because back in Luke chapter three, we were told that John the Baptist was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. He was quoting the prophet Isaiah. He was calling people to repentance. 
He was calling people to obey God's word and wisdom. And generally, John the Baptist was preaching good news. This was John the Baptist. And as you hear all that, there's some stuff in there that looks like what Jesus was doing. Because Jesus, too, had been preaching repentance and good news and calling people into the kingdom of God. And we also know that John the Baptist would have been on Herod's mind. Why? Because John the Baptist had been killed by Herod. Right? So that's on his mind. It's got to be. But therein lies the difficulty. See, Herod had imprisoned John and had had John executed. So could John be resurrected? Others, though, are saying that Jesus is Elijah appeared. Elijah was a miracle-working prophet in the time of kings, hundreds of years before Jesus, and hundreds of pages backwards in your Bible. See, Elijah prayed hard, and God heard Elijah's prayers. He answered his prayers in, in big ways. And even more, Elijah was courageous in calling out the sin of the king. And all of this was before what happened in 2 Kings 2.11, which tells us that Elijah, quote, went up by whirlwind into heaven. Stop the quote there. He went up by whirlwind into heaven. For hundreds of years by the time Jesus was walking the earth, there had been an expectation that Elijah would return before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That had been the expectation going there. So because of all this, Elijah's name is on the short list of people that the crowds think Jesus might be. Herod continues to be perplexed, though. Yet on top of the resurrected John the Baptist and a returning Elijah, still other folks are saying that Jesus is a prophet of old. Could Jesus be Moses or Elijah or another, or, I'm sorry, or Jeremiah or another prophet? See, on top of the specific examples, there was this idea in Judaism that prophets would return. And so what we can gather from this is the general feeling of people towards Jesus. That these reports getting to Herod are, are such that people think he may be one of those great prophets. And he may be one of those great prophets returning to God's people. The people show respect to Jesus in their guesses. But they don't yet know. And they don't yet see. They don't yet believe rightly about him. Because the best guesses of the people on the ground are what we just said. John the Baptist, Elijah, or some prophet of old. In verse 9, we get a glimpse, though, of where Herod's at on Jesus. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to hear him. See, he's hearing such things, and that means he is really hearing stuff, that there may be these categories, these comparisons for but none of the options fully check out. See, there's something about this Jesus, and Herod recognizes that. He might go with John, except, again, he knows that he killed John. And Herod feels like he really needs to see this, so um, he needs to see Jesus so that he can figure it all out. See, Herod isn't close to Jesus, but he wants a look. Maybe if he gets closer, maybe if Herod gets his own eyes on Jesus, Maybe then he'll know what the answer is. Maybe then he can figure it out. Maybe then he'll know what to do with Jesus. Let's skip down to verse 18. 
Now it happened that as Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Jesus is praying. Jesus is praying. Let's don't just pass by that. It's obviously important that Jesus is praying, right? Like we like to know that Jesus is praying and like we know we should pray and all those things. But we also want to note that Jesus prays quite regularly in the Gospel of Luke, right before something big happens. Right? He prays and then something happens. Here's some examples. Jesus prayed right before his baptism. Then the heavens opened, the Holy Spirit descended on him, and a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Jesus prayed, then he healed a paralytic. Jesus prayed, then he called the apostles. And Jesus prayed in last week's text that uh, Pastor Matt preached from, and and then he fed 5,000 people with only five loaves and two fish. So when we see this, that Jesus is praying, we we can prepare ourselves for something revelatory about to happen about him, about to happen. That lets us in on on who he is. See, Jesus is praying and the disciples are around and he asks them, who do the crowds say that I am? Now, it's not the first time this question has been asked. And the disciples, we can imagine, have been around people as well as asking these questions themselves. And so the disciples answer with the exact same options that Herod was contemplating above. John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets of old. And we can tell that the crowds... And Herod, see this prophetic nature of who Jesus is. The question is, is that enough to really describe Jesus? See, those who are, all the people they're naming are all legends. And it shows with the type of respect that Jesus was receiving from the crowds. But it also makes him a repeat. See, the comparisons may be great for everyone else. But they're too little for him. See, Jesus isn't a 2.0 of a great prophet. Even a prophet that flew away into the heavens. So Jesus asked the disciples, but who do you say that I am? But who do you say that I am? Now Peter steps up and replies for everyone. And he doesn't reply like Herod, who was far away. And Peter doesn't reply like the crowds. Peter is near and up close. And he hears and sees so much of what is happening with Jesus. But he also sees Jesus' prayers answered. He sees Jesus when others don't. He's near. He's close. He's not guessing from far away. Peter answers saying that Jesus is the Christ of God. See, he doesn't use many words but he uses the right ones. The Christ of God. Jesus is the Christ. 
Jesus is the anointed. Jesus is the one through whom all the promises of God will find their fulfillment. Jesus, the Christ of God, has come to free his people. One commentator says it very clearly. Jesus is not the messenger. He is the message. Jesus is not the messenger. He is the message. All of the other folks, they thought Jesus were messengers. All the other people that they thought Jesus was were messengers. And that's awesome. We need messengers, right? But Jesus is not the messenger. He's the Christ. He's the anointed. He is the message. And in verse 21, he responds to Peter, but a little bit differently than we may expect. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. See, we may expect Jesus to say, you're right, Peter. You're right. Instead, he tells them to be quiet about this for a moment. And at first, it may not make sense, but just like the crowds, the disciples have certain expectations about what it means for Jesus to be who they now know he is and what that will look like. In particular, there would have been some expectation of political rule and earthly happenings that are in contrast to God's plan for Jesus. You see, the glory of Christ is going to satisfy. The glory of Christ is going to surpass all their expectations. But it's also going to come in a different time and a different way than what they expect. There will come a time for the proclamation of him as the Christ, but not yet. Because Christ's glory is not going to come quickly or easily. Rather, Jesus' glory is going to be revealed as he fulfills the promises of God. And we're going to see it. We have been seeing it. Him freeing the oppressed, healing the blind, cleansing lepers, raising the dead, and preaching good news to the poor. And it's going to come after his suffering. See, God had planned this. God knew it would happen. Jesus the Christ will suffer. And not once. He says here that he'll suffer many things. Many things, including betrayal and persecution and death. Jesus will suffer in the deepest ways imaginable. Jesus the Christ will be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. This will not be happening by random people off the streets or pagans who claim to hate God. No, it will happen at the hands of the ones who should know. It will happen at the hands of the big bosses of Judaism who knew he was to come. And they're going to completely miss that Jesus is the Christ of God and actively seek his, uh, seek his destruction as part of their rejection. 
His body will feel this. His mind will feel this. His heart will feel this rejection. Jesus, the Christ of God, will be killed. Jesus will be nailed to a cross and die. The Christ of God will be killed in the most cruel and shameful and dehumanizing way. He knows this. Jesus, the Christ of God, will be raised. Though humanity will seek to destroy him and seemingly succeed, God will not allow that to stand. Jesus will take the suffering and the rejection and will be killed, but he won't stay in the grave. He just won't. He will be raised. We can see here the humility of Jesus is leading to glory, to the glory of Jesus, to the victory of Jesus. This is who Jesus is. The Christ of God who will suffer, be rejected, be killed, and will be raised from the dead decisively and gloriously. See, Jesus is not John the Baptist or Elijah or some prophet of old. He's all that they were preparing us for. Jesus is the Christ of God. Now Luke wants his reader, he wants you and I to have the same curiosity and interest in Jesus that Herod does. See, this is the question we should all be asking. Who is Jesus? And our answer changes everything. But we've got to realize that this isn't like watching some sports draft for us. What I mean is that you and I may not get attached when the Pats are drafting a late rounder who we doubt will make the final roster at Downs. I mean, we might after last night, but, but we might not worry about that. Most of us don't sit around in those later rounds agonizing over what random, unheralded guy we get to read about for the next five weeks of training camp. We don't do that. Shout out to those that do. But with Jesus, we don't get to be unattached like that. With Jesus, we don't get to be distant and to not pay attention. With Jesus, we have to make a call. So is he just another prophet of old or something else in our world offering to make things, offering to make life just a little bit better? Is that who he is? Like a drug or self-help or a new diet or a new relationship? Is he just another? Is Jesus just another? Or is Jesus the Christ? Is Jesus the Christ? 
Is he the one that did suffer, that did experience rejection, that did die and was raised that you and I might live? That you and I might be redeemed sons and daughters of God. Is that who Jesus is? Because at the end of the day, we all must answer, not Luke's question, not my question, Jesus' question. Who do you say that I am? The Seven Mile Road today, I ask, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is?